Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, please be seated, and while you're being seated, if you would, open your scriptures to the Brit Tadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures. I'd like to share with you from the book of Philippians. I wanted to share with you from this portion, because for those of you who've been a part of Bethario for a while, you know the struggles, the challenges that we are facing, or the challenges that I have faced. And I, as I was reading God's Word, of course, it's the book of Philippians we need to go to, in order to hear these wonderful words of encouragement and this encouragement for joy that the Lord has provided for us. For the book of Philippians, by the way, is perhaps Paul's most personal letter. It is that letter that reveals his heart throb perhaps more clearly than any other letter that he has written. It may not be his most theologically astute writ letter, But it is no doubt his most personal and one that reflects his great love and appreciation for the believers that were located in Philippi. So let me read you these first 11 verses and share some thoughts with you. In verse 1 it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints, all the separated ones, all those whom Messiah has separated unto himself, at Philippi, together with the overseers, elders, and deacons, the leaders of that congregation. He says, Chesed, grace, and shalom, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership In the good news, from the first day until now, being confident confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the good news, All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes through the Yeshua, the Messiah, to the glory and praise of God. That's just the opening line. But what encouraging words, what loving words, what caring words Paul shares with the believers at Philippi. Philippi was one of the major cities in Europe, in Macedonia, in the northern part of what is today Greece or that area. And it was a very strategic and historic place. It was not far from here that Octavian and Anthony defeated Brutus and Cassius, you know, and eventually Octavian became Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar of the Roman Empire. It was here that that conflict took place. Years earlier, it was named after Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And thus, this city, because of its unique location and because of this unique individual, Philip, it was named after him. Now, Paul contacts the believers here in a very unique way. You can read of this in Acts chapter 16. But you'll find that Paul stepped out on his second journey in order to establish congregations in the then-known world. Earlier, he had gone with Barnabas and John Mark, and they landed on the island of what is today Cyprus, sailed around that island, went north into the area that is today modern-day Turkey, which in the ancient world was called Asia Minor. Then he returned home to his home congregation, which was in Antioch, Syria. He spent some time back in Antioch, Syria, when he then felt the calling to leave for on a second journey. This time, John, Mark, and Barnabas separated from Paul. They went south to visit the congregations that were established on the island of Cyprus. Paul took Silas with him and went north and traveled through modern Turkey or Asia Minor. When he came toward the coast, which would be near Constantinople or that area today, he was at the city of Troas. And it was there that he began to pray with regard to where the Lord would send him. As he began to make his movements, he found that the Lord restrained him from going in certain directions. First, he went north and he found that the Lord just put the brakes on his ability to move north. He thought of retracting his steps, returning and going east. But again, the Lord seemed to stop him. He intended to go south, and then he had a dream, and in the dream he had a vision. And in the vision he saw a man. And the man said to him to come over to help us over in Macedonia. So he set sail, and he arrived in the city of Philippi, this major thoroughfare thoroughfare in in the Roman world. While he was there, according to the book of Acts, he runs into three unique individuals. The first individual he runs into is Lydia. Lydia is from Asia. And she's a very wealthy woman because she is from Thyatira. And she was a dyer of purple linens. And so that was a very extravagant dye in the ancient world. And so the implication is that Lydia, this Asian woman, was really a person of great means. She must have gathered around her some other women who were near a river bank, and it was there that they would pray and seek the Lord. 
Paul meets up with her and some other women there, and he begins to teach them, he begins to pray with them, he begins to worship with them, and out of that forms this congregation in Philippi. While he is ministering in the city, he runs into another interesting individual. This woman is not from Asia, she's a Greek woman. She's a young girl, in fact. And this woman begins to follow, or this young girl begins to follow Paul around. She realizes that there, he realizes there is an evil spirit within her. And so he ministers to her, casts out this spirit. And this individual becomes a follower of Yeshua, a follower of the Messiah. She's a Greek young woman who is uh, ministered to by Paul. Well, when word gets out of how this girl was so healed, and no longer would therefore make money for her family, for her, those that were sort of uh, stirring her on to such things, for whom people would pay money to have their fortunes told or would pay money for healings or whatever she was doing. Now that that was no longer occurring, a stir rises up in the city. And they begin to point at Paul. And they say, this man and those with him, they are Jews and they're stirring up this city. I wouldn't quite call it anti-Semitic, not in the modern terms, terms of the word, the way it's used today, but it certainly was like that. This was a Roman city of great stature. This was a city, by the way, in which soldiers that went on retirement would oftentimes settle in this city of Philippi. So it was sort of like a military town. Before we, my wife and I moved here to... to um, to Los Angeles, we lived in Annapolis. It was sort of a military, I don't know if military is the right word, but the Naval Academy was there, so it was a very naval kind of place. I remember when my wife and I were first considering to move down there, I said, I'd never lived before the Mason, below the Mason-Dixon line before. And I was a little like this about that, knowing what Southerners, some Southerners, sorry, Brent, some Southerners might be like. But we moved into Annapolis, and it was there that I met all kinds of people that worked in Washington, all kinds of people in the military, all kinds of people in the Defense Department, and all kinds of things relevant to Washington, D.C. It was very interesting running into folks like that and ministering to people like that, and they're very dedicated, devoted, and sort of single-minded in their intentions and in their manners. Philippi was like that. And so when Paul comes into this town with Silas and then later Timothy, well, and they stir up trouble, really weren't intending to stir up trouble, they're just healing this girl. But in doing so, individuals were disturbed by the transformation that occurred. And as a result, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. It's there that they meet up with another set of individuals. They meet up with Roman soldiers, Roman guards. So he met this Asian woman, he met this Greek girl, and he meets this Roman soldier. And it's there that while they are praying that the Lord causes an earthquake and the jails open up, and the Roman guard that was there was concerned because he thought everyone then escaped, and as a consequence, he would have been put to death. But Paul tells them not to. Everyone just stayed put where they were. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I would have just ran like crazy. 
But no, everyone just stood and stayed in their cells. Because Paul's concern was not so much to escape as it was to help these individuals know the Lord that had placed them there. He saw his experiences as divine appointments for particular purposes. And he knew that he was in that prison for a purpose and it was this jailer and others. And of course, these jailers were chained to their captives very often. And to be chained to Paul, can you imagine what that would have been like? He doesn't really sit there saying, stop it, stop it, you know. And he's just saying, well, one more thing, one more thing, and pray, etc. And you can't imagine that these individuals would not have come to faith as a result of being so closely attached physically to Paul while in prison. And this man does come to faith as well. What's striking to me about all of this is that Paul is able to relate to all kinds of people, Asians, Romans, Greeks, He can minister to women. He can minister to young people. He can minister to soldiers. You know, he just was an individual that because Messiah was first and foremost in his life and because Messiah has come for all peoples, Jew and non-Jew alike, when the spirit of Messiah takes residence in our hearts and takes residence in our lives, we too are enabled to relate to all kinds of people with the good news if we allow the spirit to have his way with us. And so these People at Philippi came from those experiences. And of all the congregations Paul established, it was only the believers in Philippi that partnered with him in the manner in which they partnered with him. Because Paul was taken care of by the believers in Philippi. When he leaves Philippi, because things are getting more difficult and more challenging, he sets up elders, deacons in the congregation, he moves on, and he goes to Thessalonica. And when he's at Thessalonica, the the believers at Philippi send him a gift and provide for his needs there. When he leaves Thessalonica, he heads down to Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, the believers at Philippi again send another gift to Paul to take care of him. This letter written to the Philippians takes place around 10 years after he established the congregation at Philippi. The congregation at Philippi was established around 52 after the time of Messiah. But this letter is being written around 62, shortly before his death under Nero, which is generally dated somewhere anywhere between 64 and 66 A.D. So now 10 years have transpired since he's been back at that city. Once he left, he's never revisited. And therefore, he has only been in touch with them through letters. He mentions in this letter that he has written other letters. We don't have those letters, but we have this one. And what's really neat about this letter is that he records for us in chapter 2 that the Philippians, the believers in this congregation, continue to be so concerned for Paul, they not only send him a gift, but the gift among gifts that they send him are not only financial gifts, but they send him Epaphrodites, chapter 1 or 2 he's mentioned, to be his personal servant while in prison in Rome to take care of his needs before he dies. That means that these believers gathered together and they said, who is willing and able to go to minister to Paul? And with words of encouragement, 
with funds. They give it to Epaphroditus and he heads out to Rome. We don't know how long he stayed there, but at the end of chapter one or two, Paul is sending him back to the believers at Philippi. He's sending him back because he said Epaphrodites has grown homesick. And his homesickness has led to some real physical problems for him. And he said that, and he says in the letter that he was near death. Because he had given of himself so much to Paul that he had worn himself out, worn himself down, and was separated from the people whom he knew and were closest to him. And Paul, in his loving way, doesn't just say, oh, Epaphroditus was a quitter, so I'm sending him back to you. No, he says, he so served so hard, he needs you guys once again. And so he sends him back to him. But all of that reveals this loving concern that Paul has for the believers. Now, remember, he's in prison. He's a Jew. He's in Rome. He's chained to these Roman soldiers. If it was me, I would be so concerned for myself, wouldn't you? You'd be saying... Could you send another guy, you know? Could a bunch of you guys come? Could you send me more money? Can you know? But no, Paul is saying, look, God is taking care of me. And I can send back what you have given to me because I'm okay. And so it made me think that all of us go through challenging moments in our lives. I'm going through a challenging moment, as I've shared before. We all go through challenging moments in our own ways, in our own circumstances. And so I started to reflect on what it is that oftentimes robs us of the joy of the Lord. What it is that robs us of joy in him. Because we all experience it, haven't we? Am I alone in this? I mean, am I alone? We all have experienced that. And so I started thinking in my own life, what things have contributed to sort of the absence of joy? I mean, I read this morning that psalm from verse 16, in your presence is joy everlasting. Messiah said that he came to give us life, to give it more abundantly. He came to give us joy that is the joy of the Lord. We read of all these scriptures that say it is the joy of the Lord that is ultimately our strength. That sense of hope, that sense of being able to sort of relax in the hand of God. So what things come into our lives that oftentimes take away that joy from us or make it hard to experience? And there are a number of things. First of all, circumstances come into our lives because circumstances very often are out of our control. I mean, you can get up in the morning and you figure, I've got to make this appointment. You get out on the road and there's an accident and now the traffic is all backed up and you're late. And maybe you miss out on something very important because of it, but it wasn't, had nothing to do with your fault. It's the way circumstances begin to unravel and the way things begin to happen and the way experiences are experienced. Circumstances have a way of sort of unnerving us, untying us, and dislodging us from those things that seem to secure us. We live in a time in which our economy is is in great duress. 
And many of us have invested in things for the future. We just see it dwindling, dwindling, and we wonder where will we be at the end of our lives? Will we have enough to live on? Can we pay our bills? And then I thought, you know, Paul never had a mission agency that took care of him. Paul never had a bank account. Paul never had any savings. All these men and many more and women have gone through life and life circumstances and somehow came out the other end okay. And I think Max Lucado wrote a, a new book Mary Lou was telling me about. I haven't had a chance to read it, but it will all be okay or something like that. And the truth of the matter is, if we look back on our past, there are all kind of circumstances that invaded our lives that we have come through. And that we have seen resolved in some way. Maybe not in every way we might like, but resolved enough that we can move forward and experience joy. But circumstances, if we focus on the circumstances, can rob us of that joy. I think what Paul was able to do is to look at his circumstances through Messiah. Rather than look to Messiah through his circumstances, he was able to look at his circumstances through Messiah's dwelling presence in his midst. It comes by experience. It comes by being in hard places. It comes by being stretched. But it comes in the crucible of life's uncertainties. And so circumstances sometimes can really rob us of joy. There are other things that can rob us of joy. Dare I say this? People can rob us of joy. I used to say to my students, teaching is great if it wasn't for them. (laughs) I could say, you know, pastoring is great if it wasn't for the sheep. But there's something very not true about that, right? Because what would it be like teaching a class of empty seats? You know, that doesn't make any sense. And faith in the Lord is not lived in isolation from the world. It's lived in the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We can't escape people. I guess the monks have tried to do that, but then they do look in the mirror now and again. Maybe. But you can't escape people. And people can be cruel. People can be ruthless. People can be very mean. And people can make life hard. They can say cruel things. Even when they intend to say nice things, they say cruel things. And it's not just them, it's also us, right? Because we too are, unfortunately, people. And we are people who are also fallen. And we are people who do similar things. And that's why the scripture makes very clear that we need to learn to forgive because we need to be forgiven ourselves as well. And so people can be ruthless. In the body as well as outside. Make no mistake about that. But it's not just circumstances and people that can be unsettling and rob us of joy. But then there's this thing called worry. I used to be thought of by my friends as that one who, how come you never worry? How come you just seem to handle these things so well? And then if anyone saw, anyone see the the videos that were taken of our sale? On Facebook, I know Renee wrote me, and maybe some of you, check it out, you know, if you like. It's really, it's just beautiful to be out there. And listening to you too, I mean, what's better than that? You know, sailing on the high seas with you two doing their thing. But somebody wrote, well, I'll say who it was. uh, My friend Brian, just so I could put what I'm going to say in perspective, 
Brian is about 12 years younger than me. And once when we had sailed down to Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina, we, we were on the boat for like 21 straight days. And we got off and we went to a, um, went to a church. And we said, let's go to service this morning. So we go to the service. And we, you know, these were strangers. We meet these people. We're sitting in the road together. I'm saying hi over here. And some other people behind us are saying hi, you know. And so one guy says to Brian, he, now you have to understand, Brian is like, at the time was 40-something, early 40s or so, I guess. He's mid-40s now, I think. He's in his 40s. He's got like five kids, you know. And um, this man behind him says to him, hi, my name is so-and-so. He says, hi, Brian. He says, are you guys visiting for the first time? I said, yeah, we just sailed into town. And he said, oh, is this your dad? And I thought, you know, Brian... I can't hang with him too much. The other, by the way, one time he was visiting and we went to a restaurant. He ordered a beer. I couldn't believe this one. Maybe I shouldn't say that. And they asked him for his ID. And I said, I'm not going to order him, but could you just ask me for my ID, you know? But someone on Facebook saw the video and they said, Gary, haven't seen you with so much gray hair. Are you under a lot of stress? He had no idea. But I was always thought of by others as seems to be able to handle this stuff, you know. But I got to tell you, worry is a problem for me. I don't always show it, but it's always there. And even though the scripture says, don't worry about anything. And it doesn't just sort of exhort us not to worry. It commands us not to worry. It's one of those commands I break all the time. And I have to say, Lord, forgive me. How can I not trust you? I don't get this. But the fact of the matter is, very often I just don't. And then I hear the words of our Lord, O ye of little faith. And even though when I've preached through the life of Messiah and read, you know, and shared about some of the experiences the disciples had, I have to say sometimes my speaking about those things, I said, how can those guys feel that way? Messiah's walking with them. There's something wrong with them. You know, Peter to say, to say uh, may it never happen, you know, when, he's, when he says that he's going to the cross, etc. He says, oh, that will never happen. And Messiah says, get behind me, Satan. How can Peter say this stuff? But he does. And, you know, I dare say I probably would say similar things, too, if I was there. It's very interesting what Messiah says about the religious leaders of his day, you know, in Matthew 23, he says that oftentimes they were so proud of their religiosity that they say things like, if we were there, we wouldn't do the things that they did. So we have to be very careful. We read the disciples and some of the foibles of them. Well, if we were there, we wouldn't say such things. But the fact of the matter is, we have more than what the disciples had. I mean, it would have been wonder- it's wonderful to think of Yeshua right there visibly and physically right there. But we have the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst with, to the fullness that the disciples did not have. We have all the truth laid out for us through the inspiring work of God himself. Through the instrumentality of individuals telling us exactly what the will and way and works of God are. And we still struggle. So worry can rob us of joy. That's the point. So how do we deal with these things? Well, take a look at Philippians chapter 1 one more time. If I can, in the few moments, let me share some really neat things that struck me. 
I think the way that joy can be restored and experienced is not in isolation, but in connection with others. That's why I think it is so important that a congregation is truly that of as a body. But look at these three things I just want to emphasize or focus attention on. In verse 3, notice Paul remembers the believers at Philippi. In other words, he's thinking about them. So the first thing that strikes me is one of the ways to rekindle joy is to connect with one another. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. We need to think about one another. So when we pray, do we think about one another? And are we mindful? You know, we send out these prayer requests. Do we get them? Do we think about those individuals and individuals that are struggling with something or worshiping, praising God for something? And are we joining with them? Paul remembers the believers at Philippi. Now think of all the people Paul had come into contact with. Think of all the people Paul has ministered to and is ministering to. Think of all the trials and challenges Paul is presently encountering in prison in Rome. And look what he tells us. I thank my God every time I think about you. And what does he do? In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. By the way, the word joy and rejoicing comes up 20 times in this letter. At least 20 times. In this first chapter, reference to Messiah comes up nearly 20 times. And in the entire book, as I sat and counted them as best I could, in the entire book, some 15 times, I counted the word think or remember or mind. The key for these believers and the key for Paul's joy was his thinking about others. And thinking about the work that God was doing in others. So much so that later on in this first chapter, he says, there are some people who are proclaiming the good news out of envy and with destructive purposes. But he says, you know, I don't really think about that. What I'm really praise God for is that God's word is being proclaimed. Whatever the motive might be, his attention and focus is on the Lord. And therefore, when he thinks of these individuals... He thinks of God at work in their midst. He doesn't know how he's working, but he knows he is because, as he says in this first chapter, that he who began a good work in you, verse 6, will carry it out to completion until the day of Messiah. The whole thing is that we have to become a people for whom Messiah is central. It is about him and it is of him that we need to be reflecting on and thinking about. And so everything that Paul is concerned with and everything that Paul rejoices over is the work of God in their hearts and in their lives. And he has this great confidence that he who's begun that work will complete it. And that's true for you and I as well. Whatever challenges we go through, whatever worry is on our hearts that we need to deal with, whatever people are in our lives that make life difficult, whatever circumstances have invaded our space, the Lord will complete the work he's begun in you. 
There is no greater, except maybe Romans 8, no greater statement about the security of the believer and of God's intentions to do what he has proposed to do in us, which is to conform us unto himself. And so notice, first of all, that he remembers, he thinks about those that he has ministered to. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership, that's the connecting link. As I told you, he sent, they sent the Paphrodites. They sent gifts. They were continually in partnership with him from the very beginning even until now. Look at verse 7. Not only is his joy restored because he has his mind set on what God is doing in the lives of people he's ministered to. But look at verse 7. He says they are also on his heart. Not only are they on his mind, they are in his heart. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you that what God has begun he will complete. Why? Because I have you in my heart. And so it's not just that he thinks about them, he's concerned for them. He embraces them, even when they're not there. They are on his heart. I don't know how else to sort of describe this. But he loves them, is what it is revealing. And notice what he says about this. Whether I am in chains as a prisoner of Rome... But it's interesting, though a prisoner of Rome, Paul in this letter calls himself a prisoner of God. Though he is chained to a Roman guard, he refers to himself in the very first verse as being chained to God himself. I am a doulos, a slave of God. I am chained to him. It may look like I'm chained to a Roman guard, but in reality, I'm chained to God. It may look like I am in prison, but in reality, I am where God has me because I am his servant, ultimately. And so he says here, whether I am in chains, whether I am defending the faith, the word here is the word apologia. We get the word apology from, not apology to, uh, to apologize for something, but it means to defend the faith. To stand up and to give reason for the hope that lies within us. No matter where he is, he's doing that. Or whether he is encouraging. That's what the word confirming the good news means. It means to encourage the good news in the lives of others. Whether I am building others up. Whether I am arguing for the truth of the good news. Whether I am free in a city to walk the streets. Or whether I am chained in a Roman prison. It is Messiah who is first and foremost. And because of that. You are on my heart. No matter what I'm doing, I'm thinking about you. I need to learn about that. I think we all do to some degree because I get so focused on the responsibilities I have, I forget the people that need to be on my heart. I get so concerned to make sure that I've studied and worked hard and getting my message together and thinking out what I want to share so that when I come, I can do so in a positive, encouraging, clear manner, the best of my ability. I get so engrossed in what I'm doing, I can forget the people for whom I'm doing it for. And that is what Paul is reminding us of here. He has the people in his heart, even as he goes through the responsibilities that God has called him to fulfill. And notice this, not only are they on his mind, not only are they in his heart, but they are also in his 
prayers. Look at verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Messiah to his glory and praise. He's praying for maturity. He's praying that they will grow up as solid believers. That's what he's talking about. When he talks about their love abounding, that means to become mature in one's relationship with God. Love is a deep, serious matter. And so he prays that their love for him might grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What he's telling them is that they would know the word of God. This is not just some kind of subjective, ethereal connection with God. This is about knowing the word in which the knowledge of God and the revelation of God is put forth without error. That's why the word of God is so critical. It is infallible. It has no mistakes. It is inerrant. It is what God has provided for us. It is inspired. The word means to be God-breathed. It's the very words of God to us. It's very hard to sort of, because we look at words on a page and we think of the Bible like a book. But we need to think of Isaiah as the prophet of God standing before us and prophesying what we're reading. We need to think of the writers of the good news accounts of the life of Yeshua as prophets of God who are writing what God would have them tell us. And so when we read God's word, we see it as God speaking to us, making his will and purposes real to us, or at least revealed to us. And so when he says that you might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He means more and more in knowledge and depth of insight into his word and in love with his word. He's not talking about God giving you special revelation. He's not talking about God giving you special ideas, new ideas, things to tell other people. He's talking about Delve into God's word like this letter he's writing. Look beyond the word to hear the voice of God in the truths that I'm sharing. This is his letter, but it's more than just Paul's letter. It's God's word now to the the congregants at Philippi. And if we have this sense of God's word alive in our hearts, and we are pursuing it with all of our love and all of our heart and all of our energy and all of our skill, he tells us then we will know what is best. We will know what is pure. We will know what is blameless. We will know how to stand not only before others, but before God in a manner in which he will be praised with our lives. And thus he says... We will be ones filled with the fruit of righteousness. So what is he talking about? The fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians. The fruit of righteousness is the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all the other fruit that are mentioned in that passage. And what is the purpose of that fruit? That we would serve him like Paul had served him and like others before us. So what ought we to do with all of this, and how do we rekindle the joy and have it overtake 
the circumstances, the people, and the worries in our lives. The first step is we need to know Yeshua as Messiah. That's where it starts out, right? That's what he says in the very first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah. We have to be his servants, which means we have to know him. If we don't know him, everything I said is probably just mumble-jumble to you, really. So it begins by having a relationship that's real and genuine and vibrant with him. A relationship within which we are growing. A relationship in which we are depending upon him and his grace. But once we've had a relationship with him as such, it means that we need to delve into his word, as I said before. That his word would be the preeminent counsel of our lives. And then I would say, when you encounter circumstances, to see them through the eyes of Messiah. When you encounter people who are hurtful, to see them through the eyes of Messiah. When you encounter worry, step back just a moment and, re- and see them with, maybe through is not even right, with the eyes of Messiah. So that they're kept in perspective and they're not made to destroy us and in short, rob us of our joy. Messiah went to the cross, the writer of Hebrews says, because of the joy set before him. Is that really possible? So can we encounter the circumstances because of the joy that is set before us? Because here's another opportunity to depend upon Messiah. Can we face the people who would work us woe through the eyes of Messiah because we know that he will be our strength and he will be our righteousness? Can we encounter the worries? And in one sense, I don't even want to say this because I'd rather not be responsible for it. But can I address the worries that are on my heart and can you on yours? Through the eyes of Messiah, remembering that he knows our need even before we ask. That he knows every aspect of our lives, every hair on our head. And therefore, we need not worry because the Lord is ultimately with us. I know it sounds ideal, but you know that's the word of God. And Paul did it, and countless others are doing it and have done it. And we can do it too. Let me just close by telling you my good friend, I shouldn't say my, she is a friend, but she was one of my students many years ago. She graduated Moody Bible Institute. She always had a burden for the Muslim, Muslim people. So when she was in Chicago, she worked and lived among Pakistanis. For a time, she actually went to Pakistan, I think for about a year or so, and taught in a school up in the mountains uh, where it was quite tenuous at times. But she taught there. She came back. She's been here for a number of years raising support, which she has raised to go back. Her desires go back to Pakistan. In fact, she wants to go to Kabul. I think that's the capital of uh, Pakistan. In order to study at the university and get more proficient in Arabic or whatever language the Pakistanis speak. But she was hampered in doing this. But a door opened for her to go to Cyprus with a group of other relief agencies or individuals working with relief agencies. She went to Cyprus and she began to minister to people that were refugees from Syria that were in Cyprus. From there, she went to Turkey. 
And she was ministering again and supporting and encouraging. And she was given full permission to share her faith. You know, she talked to some believers, tell them about Jesus, go ahead. And they came out of Syria and then she was ministering to them in Turkey. In fact, she showed me a video of the attack on Kobe. She was right at the border watching it happen. This girl, she's 30 years old, took a bus from Turkey to Pakistan. I said, what? You know? And she was in Pakistan. She stayed with some believers that were there. She saw a pastor arrested because of his faith. So it wasn't so, you know, it didn't just come in and haul him off. It was quite done with dignity, but it was still very upsetting and amazing to her. From there, she went to Jordan, ministered to some other Muslims that were there. And two things really struck me about these people, because these are people that are leaving everything, right? I mean, oh my goodness, talk about circumstances. Talk about things to worry about. Talk about people who hate you. And the thing is, when she shared her faith with these people, she saw many of them coming to know the Lord. Now, I would not believe some of these things if told by anyone else, but I know this girl. And she told me of miracles that she saw, that she was told of. And one of the miracles that she was told about were, that occurred in different contexts were some of these individuals, these Muslims, uh, that she had shared with, told their stories that people were lost, trying to find their way. They were in uh, difficult and dangerous circumstances and a man would appear and guide them to where they would need to go. And then they would look for that person. The person is gone. I mean, I don't believe those things, but I believe in my friend, you know, because he's my friend. And the other thing that was so striking to me, she said, All of these Muslims that come to faith, first and foremost, they're praying for the Jewish people. And she said they've set aside Fridays for prayers for the Jews. She emailed me once. She said, could you give me some guidelines on how to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because these people want to pray for them. And I was kind of frightened to write about that to her because I didn't want it to fall in the wrong hands and she would get into trouble. But as she told me these stories, and I thought about my own worries, my own circumstances, and those that are in opposition to me, it pales in comparison to what some of these people are experiencing in other parts of the world. And yet, God is bringing them through with great joy. And so for me, I turned my attention to the book of Philippians because that joy is available to you and I as well, whether we suffer as much or much little, or much less, much little, much less. But the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. Next week, we'll look at a little more here. You need to be encouraged. Take a moment to just read through slowly, reflectively on the book of Philippians. And let Paul encourage your heart regarding how the joy of the Lord can carry us through moment by moment. So let's pray. And while I'm praying, if the ushers want to come, this would be a great time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. And we're thankful for what a wonderful servant Paul and Epaphrodites and Timothy and Silas have been. We thank you for these believers at Philippi And how they supported Paul from the very beginning until the very end. They never left his side. 
but we're there in prayer for him. And we're grateful for a man like Paul who can encourage us to think about one another, to have each other on our hearts, and then as a result, to be praying meaningfully for one another. Ultimately, Lord, may you be central to everything that is true about us. May we see our circumstances as ordained of you and of which you are in control. May we see those people who may be difficult for us as instruments in your hands to stretch us to become more loving, more humble, more forgiving, and more concerned. May you help us, Lord, to encounter the worries that come upon us more often than we would care to admit. May we face them, knowing, Lord, that you are right alongside us to lead us to the next destination you have us to arrive at. And so ultimately, Lord, may we see you And to see what you've done for us in sacrificing your life for us. May you be the focal point of all that we are. We give you praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for the gifts that will be received this morning. We pray that you would guide us in using them responsibly. For the furtherance of your word in our midst. For the benefit of those that are in need. And in, Lord, supporting those who serve here and our missionaries around the world. We are grateful, Father, for every gift that is given. And we're thankful to the congregation and to you for them. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.